What's up, doggy? It's Sanders. Hope your arm's healing up and you're feeling good. I'm currently checking the waves at the beaches. It doesn't look that good, but I might get out there. So I've been working on this event called the Gravity Water 1000, presented by Guiaki Yerba Mate, which will be a surf contest March 23rd at Pleasure Point. Uh, there'll be a bunch of divisions. Anybody can sign up, a cash prize for the Pro-Am, and then a bunch of other prizes for all other divisions. And there'll be a rad after party at Nubo Brewery with live music. The unique thing about this contest is 100% of proceeds goes to Gravity Water and our clean water efforts around the world. So I think it's a really cool idea and concept and something to get behind. If anybody wants to sign up, you can go to the Gravity Water Instagram page and just click the link in the bio, and it'll take you to this site, and you can sign up. Um, besides that, I hope everything's going well, Kyle, and um, hopefully you're healed up so you can smoke some people in a couple heats uh, on March 23rd. You. I figured there might be some people from Santa Cruz listening in and that they would want to know about that surf contest. And I think that Gravity Water does good work, so I am happy to shine my little spotlight on them. What is up, everyone? I am coming to you from Santa Cruz, California on a very rainy day. Uh, it's good. Uh, we got ducks. I've been hanging out with the ducks in the rain. One of my new favorite activities is just to go back there in the morning and watch them. Uh and not do anything else for like 10 minutes. Just stand there. No phone. No, what do you got to do today? Just, what's up, ducks? How are you doing? Like, let's just let's just be here for a second. They just walk back and forth, and they eat their food, and they flap their wings, and they're not worried about the past or the future. I'm trying to be more like ducks. Um... I listened to a really good podcast recently that I want to recommend to all of you. It's a series called Another Way with Lawrence Lessig, who I have an intellectual crush on. And uh, it's, it's a, I think, eight-episode series. Each episode is 10 minutes long, and he breaks down campaign finance reform like a goddamn ninja. Um, campaign finance reform. <sighs> Gosh, that's boring, but he doesn't make it boring. He makes it interesting, and uh, I recommend it for any of you who want to understand the way that our system is broken through uh, corporate lobbyists in that have influence in government, and um, learn about it in a very comprehensive way. Another Way by Lawrence Lessig. We still have a few boxes of goodies left. If you want to go to my website, kyle.surf, and snag yours, the box of goodies is an assortment of some of my favorite products. This month, it is a signed copy of the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide by Dr. Jim Fadiman. It is a can of mud water, and it is a jar of Santa Cruz Medicinal's CBD coconut oil. Um, I use all of these three products within the first hour of my day, most days. Um, not specifically Jim Fadiman's book, but a book, and I use Mudwater and and Sanders Medicinals products. Um, so Mudwater, it's chai, mushroom, uh, blend, reishi, lion's mane, turmeric, cacao, all kinds of good stuff. I wake up, I take a scoop of it, I put it in hot water, and then I take a scoop of Sanders Medicinals CBD coconut oil um and i usually mix it with just a little bit of coffee um and then i sit down and i open a book i open my book doesn't matter what book it is does it's like it just just reading words for like 15 minutes i do that that usually makes me need to go poop i go poop and then i start my day so and then I look at ducks for a little while, actually. Then I start my day. But life's too short not to look at ducks and read books. Um, this episode of the podcast is with Nick Strong Svetich. Nick Strong Svetich. Uh, did I tell you? Okay, Kyle.surf, box of goodies. You get all this at a discounted price, and it comes to your doorstep. Also, to anyone who has, uh, has ordered a while ago, and you're like, where's my box? Uh, I'm getting them all out very shortly um next week i was just lacking a couple products and i'm a one-man show trying to do all of this guys i'm i'm trying my best um but anyway thank you everyone who uh supports this show by getting your box of goodies at kyle.surf this episode of the podcast is with 
Nick Strong's Fetich. Nick Strong's Fetich is the director of Save the Waves, which is a global nonprofit organization dedicated to protecting coastal resources through a unique combination of protected areas, areas, economics, and direct action. They're badass. They remind me of the Thoreau quote that is, there are a thousand men striking at the leaves of evil for every one that is, what is the quote? Sorry, guys. For every thousand hacking at the leaves of evil, there is one striking the the root. Save the waves. These guys are striking at the root of coastal conservation, and I dig their shit. Uh, You should go to savethewaves.org and check them out. If you're a surfer, do it. Do it now. That's all for now. See you soon. Much love, and please welcome to the show. Nick Strong's fetish. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. All right, Nick Strong Svetich in the house. What have you been up to, man? Uh, just been busy. I feel like busy with uh, Save the Waves, busy with kids, busy traveling, busy. Did you go to Ireland for that uh, no. the Nature Trumps Walls thing? No? No. Um, one of our board members went and then shot that that film uh, this guy christian charles and uh yeah it, it came out pretty good he was really psyched and people on the ground were really cool and, yeah um you I, got that and yeah it seems I, i've been kind of watching from afar it seems like you guys have a bunch of badass campaigns going on it's hard to keep up it is hard to keep up uh, especially when you're on the inside you're like whoa what uh, we have too many <laughs> right. we have too many things but they're all good things all starting to bear fruit no i was in um i was in chile in the beginning of the month of January and I was in, and then I went to, uh, Indonesia at cool. the end of the month. So what were you doing in Chile? Um, working out, we had a, uh, meeting with some grantors and then we have a new partnership down there. So we were sort of checking in with the people at Fundacion Punta Lobos. So just seeing how things were going, which seems to be going really well down nice. there. And then, uh, um, we are, you know, part of a, a kind of a group. There's a lot of people there that are sort of pushing to, create more legally protected waves and, and protected areas. So we were working with a group called uh, Fundacion uh, Rompientes, and they, they've got a pretty cool program of uh, creating sort of na- natural sanctuaries around waves, so concentrating on the central, okay. uh, kind so, of central coast. So to remind people, what is the model of Fundacion Punta de Lobos? How are you applying that model to other sure. places? Yeah, uh, Fundacion Punta de Lobos is uh, basically sort of the land trust and and wing at Punta Lo was created by Ramon and uh, Ramon Navarro, Ramon, Ramon Navarro, and um, a bunch of uh, local Chilean guys and Chilean philanthropists to buy the land and protect it at, at Punta Lobos, do stewardship and conservation of the place. Um, that was a pretty unique uh, concept, but I, I think they're kind of figuring out ways to extend that model in other places. But I think there's just a growing movement, which is is pretty interesting because I'd say like five years ago there wasn't like of movement towards protecting waves and now there's a bunch of groups that are doing it and they're pretty you know they have high level capacity they're all sort of environmental professionals and it's cool to see so it's it's changing rapidly but um right so what have you seen as the most successful model uh for protecting waves i think um probably our friends in peru that's a good model uh uh there's a group called conservamos and uh, a, a really awesome guy named Bruno Monteferri, who's who who led this big campaign in like 2001. Uh, the Peruvian national government approved a, a law called the the Law of the Breakers that would protect um, surf breaks around the country, but they had no way of enacting it, so it didn't really have any legislation attached with it to to show how it could be enforced. So they figured out the enforcement, and uh, in like 2013. And then Bruno and his crew uh, built a really cool campaign called Asla Putuola, which means like do it for your wave. And so they created a, a registry system that um, each community could register their wave and they would be basically do a couple of studies and then have it be approved by their government body and then um, enforced by the Peruvian Navy. 
So it has like this teeth to it that's pretty cool. And we worked the, with them on sort of the first process in, in one Chaco and Chicama. Uh, and those became kind of the first sites. And now there's like... I've been to Chicama. Yeah. Yeah, one of the longest waves in the world. Yeah. I went there when I was uh, 14. We, we, went, we went there last year yeah. and, got to, and got to see it. But it, it's a truly... Crazy spot. It's, it's like this desert like arid landscape one of the driest places in the world and then there are those huge sand dunes i remember these kids yeah. were riding boogie boards down the sand dunes then you go and it's just this two yeah. mile long left or it's, something it's incredible it's but you're like surfing on mars like yeah. it's got this red there's not a single thing growing there there's like one tree yeah. there's like one log on the beach and you're like where did that even come from yeah. but, you know <laughs> it's just it's it's such a desert it's immense and things get just preserved there forever um, but the way is incredible. I, I think I did catch my longest wave ever at that spot, but it was sort of like, it was sort of like, you, you're like, yeah, my longest wave, but it was like a kind of an unimpressive wave. Right. Yeah. It's a little, I, it's a little slow and until probably, it gets yeah. big, right? Yeah. It was, I mean, it wasn't like big, big, but it never gets super big there, right. but it was big enough to work. And I still just felt like I was just kind of standing. Like I was like, <laughs> oh, I'm going to make this section. I'm going to make this section. Right. And then I'm like, I've, I've, I've just, tri- I've just surfed for a kilometer and I've done like no turns because right. yeah, I'm just, just kind just of going, out. <laughs> going, making sections or whatever. You know, right. So. so, um, just take me through one of those campaigns start to finish, because I think that, you know, there are probably people out there that, you know, they care about their local break and, you know, a company will come in, you know, and build a processing plant or something like that. And they feel like they have no say over it and the wave gets ruined or a jetty gets built or something like that. So, I mean, when it comes to a, a, a spot like Chikama, I know that there are a lot of moving parts and, and kind of midwifing along uh, a campaign to have it actually come to fruition. Um, so I just want to get a little bit more detail on, on how a campaign like that actually works. Yeah, I think um, you know Bruno is a good friend of mine, and he's a really a, um, a really creative thinker about building programs for conservation. And he's a great surfer too. I mean, he's like a pico alto and invitee, and he surfs really well. Um, and I think what was great about them was, um, you know, I think there's kind of two can- types of campaigns. You can either stop something bad, or you can fight for something good. And I think generally, when you're stopping something bad you lose a lot more than if you're doing something good. It's sort of a positive version vision versus a negative vision. And for them, I think this, the idea of, you know, having years and years of fighting battles that you just, you sort of win for the meantime, and then you're fighting the same battle again versus fighting the battle once and sort of being preventative, um, is a really a different thing. So I think that's one ingredient to success. And that's where a lot of, you know, save the waves has undergone that transition too. It was like, we fought a lot of battles and they were really hard and, you know, you kind of need endless resources or, and we've started to go to a more proactive model. So can we protect the place looking towards the future rather than sort of looking towards to stop something? Um, so I think that was one ingredient that was really good. The other thing that was really, um, great about Bruno's product, you know, his program design there and, and the sort of testing we underwent was, that it came from the local community first. So it provided a platform for then the local community to take ownership of the, of the wave. And I think that's one thing that we've learned a lot is that we always struggle with generally being a foreign influence and um, it being like, what do you do? Why, why are you here to save my wave? I want to save my wave. And I think that's right. Like we shouldn't parachute in and try to protect other people's stuff. We should be a resource um, for people to do what they want. And, um, and so I think that was good to decentralize the sort of ownership and make people who at the local level feel like they're owning, owning the win and owning the process. So I think that was good. And then I think having, um, having a very specific fundraising structure was great. So it was sort of like, okay, each wave needs $6,000 to complete these studies and then it's approved. So that clear process and fundraising outcome was, was great. And that helped. Uh, you know, like Save the Waves is able to help on the Juan Chaco, like go and raise the money and, and kind of guinea pig it through. But then after that, you know, it could be a, a company locally or it could be individuals or whatever. So I think that model was also really good of like decentralizing the fundraising um, too, because they were able to, you know, raise a lot of money. And so we've, you know, I feel like I'm giving a big plug for them, but we're we're partners on working on a number of big projects, especially with our new big vision, but they're touring a cool um film called Adamad that tells the story of, uh, of this, uh, of the campaign. But I think that's a, it's a good, um, 
it's a good platform, you know, and I, and so I think that there was it was a good example of of how it can be done. And what do those studies go towards? You say you need about six grand or something <laughs> mm-hmm. to to complete a study. What is that for? Yeah, so the studies were like for the bathymetry. We always end up talking about this word for some reason. You taught me that word. I know, and you you used, used it in the I, video. I like I I I listen I listen to podcasts. I'm like bathymetry. Oh. Kyle just said bathymetry correctly. Yep. You put that one in my back pocket. Uh, the bottom contours of the ocean, yeah. everyone. Um, that's right. So they had to do these kind of bathymetric studies to just show, okay, here's the swell window. Here's the thing that makes the breaking wave. So it's sort of a baseline. And then and I what, think, why is that valuable? Uh, they just required it. Okay. I mean, it's valuable to show the state, like here is the present state that makes the wave break. You know, so like, understanding the bathymetry of like Chikama, a really long wave is valuable. Cause you know, then, you know, if somebody's trying to put like a, there was actually a a port proposal there, um, that I think this helped fend off or in the case of, of one Chaka, why I think it was so, so useful is, you know, our program kind of layered on top of it with, um, uh, you know, the world surfing reserve there one Chaka is one of the world surfing reserves. And, um, there was a proposal to stop coastal erosion by installing a series of 16 jetties there and um one the world surfing reserve made them stop and pause and be like oh what i don't think we can do this in the world surfing reserve and then by working with them we actually had a piece of legislation that that guaranteed the sanctity of the world surfing reserve so having the study and knowing what the the conditions were the bathymetry that makes the wave break allowed them to say like if you do this you're going to alter this whole wave and i think there was important um, because there's, uh, you know, basically there's 3,500 years of surfing history there, right? So they've got the, uh, and I always end up talking about this, but it's a really cool, the, um, the reed, the reed boats and where surfing came from the Caballito de Totora. So they have traditional fishermen that still surf and still fish in the reed boats, like on the beach every single day. And if you put in all those jetties, those guys aren't going to be able to launch their stuff anymore. You'd lose the surfing economy. And you'd lose, you'd lose, you know, what's I consider like a world cultural treasure, you know, see the guys, uh, that have been doing the same thing, the same technology, same fishing that they did 3,500 years ago. What do the boats look like that they see? They look like kind of like an elf shoe. So they're like a, like two big bundles of reeds. They're probably, you know, three feet by two feet or maybe, you know, three and a half feet by two feet. Um, or for your international listeners, one meter by point seven <laughs> yeah. five. No, I'm kidding. Um, you know, I think like they're they're kind of they've got this like scooping nose. Closer. They've got this scooping nose to them that allows them to kind of paddle through breaking waves. So if you think about the duck diving motion, like you put the nose of your board under, right, and it's sort of that flotation makes it kind of do the upward scoop at the end of the wave. It that automatically happens with these boats. So they're pretty cool. I mean, you know, we've got some good. Um, friends that are fishermen there or my buddy Wevito. We went to Australia together, did a demo of these things, which was absolutely insane. Um, but you know, he fishes every day still with the same thing. And he showed us a tour of, uh, each fisherman there has its own. I'm going to end up telling you a bunch of stories about one Chaco, which is, you know, That's which fine. is good. But, uh, each, uh, each fisherman has their own basic, like little wetland. So the reeds grow in a wetland. Each fisherman has his own, and so they're responsible for like caretaking it and harvesting it and replanting it. And these things are really good because they actually stop the coastal erosion that's happening in Peru. But they're this like sustainable source of materials for their boats. So they harvest the reeds, um, all the reeds that they need one time a year. And then they generally build a boat like every six weeks. So they replace their boat. That's so think cool. about that. Think about that if every. Every like pro surfer had their own like surfboard wetland <laughs> yeah. and you'd be like, okay, I got all of the material for the year. I'm going to build my next board. Yeah. You know, it's kind of awesome. We need like, some sunshine. I'm going to grow some reeds to get my next stick. It's the ultimate sustainability. You know, it's been going for 3,500 years. So, um, that was, re- you know, that, that was a cool part of like, I think the deeper meaning of our work, we, we've started to think about what are, what is the actual purpose of save the waves, you know? And it's to, we've thought about this long and hard. It's to protect what we're calling surf ecosystems. And that's the, you know, the bathymetry, the thing that makes the wave break, the place, the plants and animals that are dependent on that place, and then the human communities that are dependent on it. 
some people are dependent on it for their well-being. You know, like your your life would be worse if you didn't go, you know, down to the point whenever you whenever you can or whenever you want to. Um, and, but then I also think there's a question of culture and economy that's part of the surf ecosystem. So if we're protecting a place, we're protecting, you know, the physical nature of the place, the plants and animals that live there, and then truly the community and culture and economy that's grown up around that place. So it's a pretty unique idea of like, why, why does just protecting a surf spot matter on a larger scheme? I think all of these reasons. Yeah. Well, it's a more holistic approach. Um, and that's why I like what you do. I, I, I think that also um, the point that you made about getting um, people to feel like they have ownership over the campaign is really important. I think especially in the the days of social media where you're kind of just broadcasting out to this very general network, um, that strategy is undervalued. You know, like if let's say you're trying to get something passed on Oahu, like it doesn't really matter if someone in Connecticut cares a lot about it if or or maybe it does for a certain kind of campaign but i think that it's it's good to be very strategic about who you're trying to target to get involved um it's kind of like you know people can can scream and cry all they want about trump but if they don't know who their local representative is they're probably not going to be getting nearly as much done yeah i would agree with that i think um you know i think that's the thing that's always really hard about being an international group is that you're still seen as an international group um, but I think we're really concentrating on working more, having the local f- figure and voice be the one that speaks rather than me talking. Right. And so I'm trying to trying to talk less about what we do and be like, oh yeah, we're saving this place and we're saving that place. And I think you know our example um, is uh, our, our work in Mexico. You've been down there, but we now um, she's been with us for a while. But uh, Mara Arroyo is our our Mexico. Uh, manager so you know for the whole country now and we've taken what she's done she's done an amazing job in um in Ensenada around the the world surfing reserve in Valle Todos Santos so she's done everything from keep moving uh to get the national the state park approved at San Miguel which is really close um doing cleanups and management of the island uh out there uh, you went i think you were down there yeah Todos Santos. yeah there's gonna be another cleanup with her that was Vicente. fun yeah, yeah we did the uh the shipwreck cleanup you guys got divers out there though so there was a shipwreck that that um off of uh by the, the Todos Santos and there were all these huge panels that were underwater and the whole beach was kind of there was just uh wreckage strewn about we went out there with uh jet skis and divers and it was a full-on day it was was super gnarly yeah came back (laughs) that that evening everyone had fiberglass up their forearms like red eyes like damn that was cool yeah there's a a little bit more out there that's um, been left and i heard that there was another boat that wrecked but i don't know if that was true or not i just haven't seen it so um, but Mata is the example that we're working with now, you know, when I think back to the, um, the surf ecosystem idea, we said, okay, what are we actually doing at Save the Waves? Well, we're protecting surf ecosystems. That's our whole, you know, reason to exist. And so the ultimate measure is how many of these places can we protect, right? So, so we set this giant goal this year that we're about to unroll. That's like, can we protect a thousand surf ecosystems across the world? And if you think about the number of surf spots that might exist, that's roughly like 20% of them. So think about the 20, you know, 20% being the best surf spots that are out there with the most um, sort of important in terms of uh, like biodiversity and ecosystems at the same place. So we're, we're doing that analysis right now, but the hiring um, and expanding with people like Mata that are local, they're in the community there um, and they're able to kind of coordinate that's going to make the job um, one feasible and two, just way more appropriate. So, um, that's, that's Mata's second idea is, uh, you know, similar to kind of the Peruvian model, which it won't be the exact same, but, um, building sort of an idea in each region of what waves can we protect and what's the appropriate legislation to do so. So we could have a world surfing reserve there, but that's only to protect kind of one spot. And then could we take a could we take a big a larger area or a network of spots and protect them all in the same legislation? So mm, that's create a little of bit of a model there. So we've created a model called Surf Protected Area Networks or Spans, spanning oh, the globe. 
Somebody pointed it out to me. You're I kept so saying, clever, Nick. No, I didn't. I wasn't actually clever at all. I was like, we're creating these surf protected area networks <laughs> and the surf protected area networks will be this thing that we're creating. And somebody's like, is that acronym SPAN? I was like, oh, <laughs> apparently, apparently it is. Right. So, um, that's great. So what kind of legislation, um, does that, or let, let, let me, let's go this way. If there's someone out there, they're a surfer, they want to protect their spot. Like what are the first steps that they can actually take? Well, I think there's, <clears throat> we have sort of two different ways. We have partners that can outreach and work with us. So for example, in Chile, we're working with Fundacion uh, Rompientes on this idea of, and the, and the way to protect it there. Um, or the strategy we're using is creating uh, natural sanctuaries. So it's a type of legislation for a protected area. So they're working on creating the first, you know, sort of first one around surf spots there um, with our help. So we're, we're in partnership there. Same thing within Indonesia. We're working with Conservation International and then another group called A Liquid Future. And the idea there is called, uh, creating a local marine managed area that each, each village um, signs a decree that protects their waves from, you know, uh, gnarly development, water pollution, trash, you know, essentially those kind of three things. Um, so, in, but in other places it, it can, it can be, it can look different. There can be the Peruvian model, which is a national law. There can be the Fundacion Punta Lobos model, which could be just, you know, buying the land, creating a land trust. Um, you know, or it could be like here in, in Santa Cruz, it could be a, a national Marine sanctuary. There's a lot of different mechanisms so it's, I think about, uh, identifying the correct mechanism and that's with, with sort of partners that's at the institutional level. Do you know much about the Monterey sanctuary? Mm-hmm. How does that, how did that work? I, I feel kind of embarrassed that I don't know much more about I, what that actually entails. And yeah, so I think it was a largely a, um, a response to oil spills happening, um, you know, in, like in Santa Barbara, I think in 1969, they had just a gnarly oil spill, right? So if you look down in Southern California, you'll see like a lot of oil derricks out off the coast within a visible range. So, and there's not, there's definitely oil in the Monterey Bay. And, but I think people stood up, you know, folks like, um, I'll give him a shout out to Dan Hayfley, who is the, oil- yeah, I want to get him on. He's a cool guy. He's great. Um, and he was one of the forefronts. People like Dan Hayfley and Fred Keeley and even, I think, Boots McGee was, like, involved with it. <laughs> when the surf riders in the 80s, you know. Um, and uh, so, yeah, they really were seeing what had happened when massive oil drilling came in. So a lot of it was really focused on on sort of preventing preventing big oil companies from coming in and setting up derricks and all that stuff. There's a number of other functions that the sanctuary um, – <clears throat> works on so there's there is a network of them across the u.s so there's like one in you know the olympic peninsula there's one in hawaii i think there's one in the great lakes uh i don't remember where all of the rest i think there's one on the like gulf coast somewhere um but they they all kind of have this similar legislation that will not allow for oil drilling it'll work on stewardship and then there's certain fishing um, restrictions that have to you know that depend on the place okay so those are those are functionally how it works. Um, so the sanctuary works with the Department of Fish and Game. So they say you know you can only like do, does that? Do you know if the it, like you know for example you can't get a, catch a lingcod under twenty two inches? Like would that? It's I think it's different. It, it doesn't that, as much on the fishery side. Like the fish and game, you know, there's there's federal fish and game, and then there's state fish and wildlife. I'm I'm losing track sure. of all that. They keep changing. So. Um, and then there's the Fish and Wildlife Commission for, for California that I think sets like the, you know, state regulations and things like that. So there's lots of layers of regulation and it just depends on um, the management plan. So uh, what was, I'm trying to think of when it was like 2006 or seven, they were redoing the management plan. So there was a bunch of that's when that big controversy over like, um, you know, like personal watercraft erupted around towing in and Mavericks and this and that and the other thing. So there was, they had a lot of different things that were within the management plan and each one has its own management plan. That's based on the issues that are found in that sanctuary. And I think that's, that's that model, the general model of like, here's an area it's protected by this particular law, you know, or this particular instrument. And then within that, there's a management plan that's based on the area. 
is not that challenging, but that's essentially what we're doing. We're just doing it with surfing at a global scale. Okay. Got it. And have you been a part of the national monument conversation as well? I know that's been in the news quite a bit. That seems like another mo- you know, model. Uh, national monuments are one. So there's actually like a national monument declared for, I forget what it's called. I have to, I'm, I'm probably talking out of turn now, but there, I think there's one that's declared for like major like sea stacks and rocks off the, off the state, off of the coast of California here. So there's like a weird national monument that's like offshore, but it's all the little rocks and cool Whoa. formations and things like that. So yeah, the monument is another, it's about a, it's about a, so I think the biggest challenge probably for us and for conservation, if you're making protected areas is like, do you have one, do you have local buy-in two, do you have the right tool to solve the problems that are there? And three, then can you, can you monitor and enforce it? And so if I look at the monument, um, in, up in the North coast, so North coast of Santa Cruz, um, it wasn't super successful. I mean, I don't think it was a bad idea, but it, de- it definitely didn't have like local buy-in. Like people that live up there by and large are not super positive about it because I think um, <clears throat> it might not have been the right tool. Um, it was politically popular and I underst- I could have understood it from that side of things as like, hey, this is a great chance to get this through. Obama's going to leave then we'll get a bunch of money to do this, to do the conservation later. And then that was under the idea that, um, the president wouldn't be who the president is, but now the president is who the president is. So I'm, yeah, I'm trying not to try not to name names here. Yeah. yeah. Um, so who, uh, explain that just a little bit more, like what a monument, like what that monument would entail. Cause I'd like to learn more about that. Yeah, I don't actually know the specific legislation and what you can and can't do in a national monument. But, you know, I think about, um, oh, why am I blanking on it right now? But, you know, outside of like uh, like Pinnacles was a national monument, right? Right. So it's, the climbing spot. Yeah. That's, so that what's great. It's cool. Yeah. It's, and, uh, it's super, super fun. Cool. Yeah. I've, I've been down there a few times to to go climbing with, uh, with my brother and go camp. And like there's the, beautiful. the stalactite caves that you can walk through and those little like... It's, yeah, it's, it's groovy. It's, it's a really cool place. It's and where I Gollum think, lives. Yeah, you know, I think on the if you just left it to like just out in the open and nobody owned it or it was on somebody's land that was doing something kind of crazy or what you know, it's it's cool enough that it should be protected for the public use, but it also needs to be managed. And I think they've done a good job there of managing it, and they had resources to manage it. So when I think of the North Coast. Um, you know, again, it's not a bad idea to protect these places and encourage recreation and, and all that. Like that's our whole gig. So I'm not against it. I just think that having the local people bought into it's really important because people are, are kind of bummed and they have some legitimate, some people are just bummed because whatever change they're going to be bummed on, Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is not that I know legitimate. those kinds of people. <laughs> You're like, this thing's going to be different. We fear, I hate it. We fear change, <laughs> you know, um, so that that to me isn't sure, but there were some legitimate concerns on this. What were those? You know, it didn't have resources like a, a larger management plan to manage some of the things that, like, if you promote it as a national monument, people will come. And uh, and so I think like having the resources to deal with more people, like the North Coast is already has a hard time managing the amount of people that are up there. You know, there's like there's trash on every single beach. The parking is like crazy on the weekends. There's you know, there's not a lot of, um, emergency, uh, like, you know, Bonnie Dune, Davenport and everywhere else has to kind of share like one or two emergency responders. So it takes people a long time to get up there. If something goes wrong, more people, the more things go wrong. So, and then, or if something's going wrong, cause there's more people then somebody has a legitimate issue and a hard to, hard to reach place that they actually live isn't, is going to, it's going to take them longer. Right. So, and that's, I think that those are legitimate um, issues, you know. Yeah, the trash issue up there is crazy. It's man. crazy on the side of the road. Are those issues that an organization like Save the Wave tackles? I, I would say yes and no because we're global. We can't tackle everything everywhere. But I think you know, last time I was on here, we were we were pitching the app idea, and that's one thing that we think is is really good is we have a mobile technology platform for people to be able to contribute to the understanding of what's going well and, and what's not going well in an area. You what's know? the app called? It's called Endangered Waves, 
and you know now we've got a we've got a pretty good user base it's it's really geographically diverse it's in like 18 different countries and people are reporting on you know water quality issues trash issues erosion issues access issues and then just random stuff that happens that's worth reporting to somebody you know like oh the shipwrecked like you know at natural bridges <laughs> that's weird or you know here's a dead I just think back to the Pleasure Point shark, like Great White oh, yeah, shark. The great White. Like, hey, up, there's yeah. a Great White here. So they can take a photo of it, yeah. and then they upload it to this app, and they say, hey, this beach is trashed. There was an oil spill here, or there were you know, a lot of dead animals on this beach. And then that goes to save the waves, and you can figure out a way to tackle it. Is that correct? Yeah, the idea is that we're, gonna, we're building the, you know, we've built up the background database. And that database, we can start to connect with other databases or other partners, so like if Surfrider locally is trying to figure out, oh, do I go to Red, White, and Blue Beach or do I go to Davenport Beach, you know, Main Beach to do a cleanup? Like I've done enough cleanups where I've had both things happen to me. I've showed up and we've had 45 volunteers and there's two pieces of trash. Right. And everybody's <laughs> like, well, this is, I'm putting in my time for the environment. Right. Or you show up and you have three volunteers and you have like, 40 tons of trash and you're like we're never gonna solve this you know and i (laughs) think it's about like if you can make dated like we want to just help our partners also make um better decisions because they don't have tons of resources and neither do we so that's the idea is like get people the first-hand data involve people throughout the process so you, you asked me before like what can I only partially answered your question. What can people do to get involved? And I think this is a really easy way because everyone has a cell phone. Everyone is like in and out of the beach or just checking waves and everyone sees stuff. And you see it on social media all the time. People are like, I went surfing in Bali and it was the gnarliest ever. You know, I think about that Kelly Slater post from like whatever, six years ago, right? That was like Bali, worst thing ever, do something now. And it was a picture that he saw at Kuda or wherever. Yeah. And that, I think that was the inspiration, you know, one of the inspirations behind it was, was people are sharing things that they find gnarly on social media. Let's just give them a platform to do it. And then we can use it to actually disentangle um, some of that data and make it actionable. So it's not just something on social media that people saw and were mad, but it got to an organization that can do something. Yeah, I think that it's great, man. Having um, buy-in from the people that are out there is such a smart way to go about it in the same way that hunters are very valuable resources to the Department of Fish and Game because they're mm-hmm. the ones out there. They're the ones that are seeing populations and, and they're the ones that care about it. Um, and I, I think that surfing, you know, we just haven't, we're a little bit um, for, like further back in the way that we haven't had these structures until there are people like you who've, who've set it up. So Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about this. I think we can we can give it a push and like really get it go good you know I, I we have some good relationships set up so we um we ran a campaign actually around it called the dirty beach challenge or sorry the dirty wave challenge and um basically we incentivize people to go out and help us find what they considered to be the dirtiest beach in the world so we had this you know competition that was all within the app so people would take a picture of what they considered to be the most trashed and then we started to vet it so we're we're just finalizing our selection but um, we had X Prize. We partnered with X Prize to to actually incentivize it for five grand. So, like somebody, or it may be split between two partners, but or between two two. What's X Prize? X Prize is like um, it's like a, a they do a lot of conservation stuff, but they usually they use these big prizes to motivate like people around answering questions or or competitions to build something new or novel. So, um, it's I think uh, it's run by the. It came out of sort of like the Schmidt family from Google originally. Got it. But so, and that's how we got involved with them first is the app won a, um, it's called the Ocean Big Button Challenge, which was to divide, you know, to come up with the best app for um, ocean and marine issues. And so we won best conservation app, which was cool because it, it didn't, it barely existed at that point. Like we went from like, a, you know, an alpha version that was just sort of like made up to show the concept to like, the full version with like 10 minutes left to go. Um, and I got to thank, um, both my Betty Jay Hockenin up in uh, San Francisco who helped on the first thing. And then our, our buddy Matt Mori and MJD interactive in San Diego. That was like, I like what you're doing. 
let us, you know, let us do this thing and, and tackle it. So he, he built it with like a giant team in like two and a half weeks. And it's, it's pretty much the same thing as, as that he first built. Right. So, um, looking at conservation from the standpoint of, of being a nonprofit or working in the private sector, what, um, what roles do you think both of those models have to play? You know, I, I know that you guys get your funding from a variety of different sources and probably a lot of people who work in the private sector up in the Bay Area. I know that there are a lot of companies out there that um, want to be doing the right thing. Do you have any, I guess, uh, stories of, of, of good things happening in the private sector and, and what they can do that nonprofits can't and vice versa? Yeah, that's a good question. Something I thought about a lot, actually. I think nonprofits are effective because they're transparent and they're public organizations. So you can see every dollar that we spend where it goes. And uh, that's to the, that's to the good and the bad. A lot of times nonprofits are criticized like a hundred percent should be going to the mission. A hundred percent should be going to programs. And that, that is true. hundred percent should. However, like we have to pay for the rent and the lights and the internet and like basic people's salary like yeah, we can't well, get away from it and s- smart people like you're yeah, we have to you need people that are gonna put their heart and soul into it and also have the skills to pull it off like you want people that can kick ass and people who kick ass require salaries yeah and i think you just want to show impact so sometimes people have this thing of like no we don't we don't want to see any overhead and we don't want to see it spent on that and like those those you you never go to a business and be like huh i just bought these headphones I wonder how much they spent on marketing because I don't really want my my headphone dollars to go to marketing. Right. You know, so I think there's there's a little bit of a bias, but but in in my mind I think conservation, I think nonprofits are really useful um because they are they are transparent fundamentally by the US tax law. And then I also think that they are um they provide people with a vehicle to get involved in a way that um businesses can't. So, and then I'd say the flip side is that, um, businesses can spend a lot on, on marketing, which is great because there's brands like, you know, Patagonia and Cliff Bar and all these other ones that have put conservation and environmental causes at the center of their marketing. So they're able to amp up the messages with a lot more resources than, than we would be able to. And I think that's really effective. And I also think there's, from an incentive standpoint, um, People give money to nonprofits to sort of feel good, um, to make an impact, to feel like they're part of something, and you know, to also make themselves feel good in terms of, um, you know, what they do with their dollars. But I think that um, businesses don't rely, and that can fluctuate a lot because sometimes you're like, oh, I have less money. I'm not going to donate because those are less important. But businesses always has a profit motive. So if you link the profit motive with the, um, you know, with an environmental outcome, it sometimes becomes more powerful because it's a lot simpler. You're like, this person wants to make money. The money will be made if this good thing happens. And so I think in some ways that's a better model. I, I had a lot of people that were like, why don't you use the app and make it into a business? And one, I think, I think it's a more appropriate um, public uh, interest product to be run through a nonprofit. And plus, a lot of people donated to us because they believe in us, and they wanted to, you know, they wanted the rewards that sort of being involved with a nonprofit right. gives. What do you mean about um, you know in the private sector, the you know a profit will be made, and then something good will happen as a result of that profit? Just expand on that point a little sure. bit. Sure. <clears throat> so, like. Um, you know, like, uh, just use Patagonia for example, cause they're the, the easiest one. Yeah. Um, but they have a whole marketing, right? They pay to put, have Greg Long go on Surfline, right? And, and that definitely turns a profit. People are like, oh, so cool. Such a good brand, Patagonia. I'm going to go buy a puffy jacket. They get a profit, but Greg Long and, and everything they've invested into also benefit. You know, people are like, oh, I want to be inspired and be an activist like Greg or, or, or your, you know, or yourself, like they pay you to do projects that are good for the environment, but that helps their bottom line. So their bottom line in turn 
actually helps create change. And I think that's, so they have an incentive to create the change. Whereas in nonprofit, the, the same incentive for the person that, um, there's just a different set of incentives. Yeah. And I think sometimes financial incentives are usually more straightforward, easier for people to understand and, and generally move people more than, you know, like, like, like I do my work and it's important cause I want to have an impact on the world. Um, but the impact on the world itself doesn't feed my kid. Right. You know, so, so if I had a, you know, if there was a brand, then you could, you would make money, have the impact. And, and I still, I, I feel like I believe in, in nonprofits as a structure. I think that nonprofits can learn a lot from businesses. And we've been thinking about a lot, that a lot at Save the Waves. We've worked a lot with, um, one of our board members, a good friend of mine, Al Ramadan about, um, he's, you know, lives in Santa Cruz now and runs Play Bigger. And, um, <clears throat> we just thought a lot about the differences between for-profits and nonprofits because he's from the for-profit industry. And so we're kind of learning both ways. I think we have a lot on the nonprofit sector to learn from the, from the business world, just about being more efficient, more bold, more daring, um, better marketing. Do you feel like you can be more daring as a private business than you can as a nonprofit? Um, I'm not sure. I, I think you can sometimes, it just depends on what your funding model is. Like if you're primarily funded by foundations, they typically like to give to things that are tried and true and align with their values. And sometimes like doing something crazy and risky is like, they're not that into it. Um, so it depends on your, it depends on your model, I think, uh, on your business model. But I, I think, you know, like, I don't know, corporations take a lot of risks or especially startups take a lot of risks. And I think that's risk is rewarded. This is one thing that does bother me sometimes is that risk is rewarded, um, in kind of the startup atmosphere and with venture capital firms and risk, like in the nonprofit sector is like kind of frowned upon like, Oh no, 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 no. Don't try something crazy with my money. I want it guaranteed impact. Right. And so I think it, it takes a little bit of the it makes experimentation a little harder. Right. And even with um, messaging, like a, the, a lot of um, nonprofits are kind of anodyne in their... Uh, nice it, word. It's a good one, right? Yeah. yeah. I've been trying that out. I mean, it's like afraid to um, create offense. Mm. Um, it, they're, they're anodyne in their way of that they don't want to scare off funders. But then you look at, you know, a, 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 like Patagonia is not in the way that they... Like we'll do a campaign where they're, where they're like, we're suing Trump. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Fuck off, you know. And they're rewarded for that, you know, because and I think people now more than ever like they're they're just so um, tired of being marketed to by kind of vanilla campaigns. Like they want something punchy. Mm. Um, and, but but you know, as far as like the, I don't know. I, I actually don't know what the the takeaway uh, is there. But I think about that. Yeah. Patagonia could step and be like, yep, we'll see you in court and we'll be on the Hill testifying. Right. And to me, I think we actually watered down our Trump campaign a little bit because like <laughs> if we get sued, like that's not great, you know? Right. So it's just a different scale. I think we're, we're in some ways we're more risk adverse. And I think the larger you get as a, um, as an NGO, the the more risk adverse you sort of become in some ways and i think it, one of the things that's cool about being a little bit you know smaller and scrappier is you're pretty flexible so there's some some experimentation you can do you know without like sacrificing i don't know 400 people's jobs or something like that right and i don't and i, I don't think we're super risky at save the ways but i think we can be pretty flexible Got it. and uh, and creative what are ways not to do a campaign. I think that there's, it's very easy to see a problem and want to go straight into protest mode. Um, I see that a lot, you know, just you see an issue and you rally some people together and then you start screaming about it. And sometimes that's, that might be the way to go. Sometimes it might not be, you know, like, um, like I have a, a friends over at uh this company called maui nui venison and they work to um, remove axis deer from maui which are overpopulated mm -hmm. there's over fifty thousand on maui they um have 
deleterious effects on watersheds and on ranches. And it doesn't, I mean, it matters that people know that what they're doing is a good thing overall for the ecosystem, but it matters more that they're just out there getting the work done. Like their marketing is important in, in a certain way, but, but it would almost be better if kind of no one knew what they were doing and they were just out there doing it. Um, I feel like I'm kind of, I'm having a hard time being super clear with the question here, but, um, the question is like, yeah, how do you, yeah, what are big landmines that people step on when they start campaigns? Well, I think, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think not having a plan, that's kind of the first thing. I think a lot of the campaigns we do, we, we think about what's the objective that we're trying to achieve and then work our way backwards from that. So they're pretty built out about here's the call to action. Here's the thing you can do. Here's the audience we're targeting. Here's the call to action. Here's how we're going to measure it. Here's the ultimate objective, you know, and make sure we start with the objective and kind of work our way back through that. Um, so I would say not having a clear plan, not being, not being strategic about it, just being pissed off doesn't really help. Um, and then, you know, I think I go back to some of the, some of the campaign and what I, um, I think activism is super important, but it's also a tool and you have to see if you're selecting the right tool because sometimes it's not, it's not the right, um, approach. And it usually has to be a combination of approaches. If you want to really change something, you know, you have to change the incentives for someone. You have to change the legislation for someone. You have to change the, uh, the, the public's mind about something or you have to make a deci- you have to have a decision maker change how they go about doing something. So it, it takes all of these all of these sort of strategies and I think thinking about it from those different strategies because a lot of times it's like oh there's this problem and we know the solution is going into the streets. Okay, we're in the streets, we have our signs. The signs are hilarious. And then you go for the march and then did the thing change that you were trying to change. And I think we get a little disconnected to that because the we start to focus on the marching as as the outcome when it's not, you know, that's like the, that's the strategy to get to the outcome. So I think we lose track of the outcome. Um, a lot of times I also think that we tend to want to stop. So I go back to this, what I said before, we want to stop something bad, um, rather than showing what the alternative is. And so I thought about that a lot and I haven't studied it, you know, in depth, but one thing that I thought was pretty good about them, you know, and somebody knows more about civil rights history than I do, but I think something that was really good was they both showed what they were against, you know, segregation, but then also showed like clear pathways to what they were for, which is a civil rights act. So there became like a, like a specific, we want this to be implemented rather than just, we hate segregation. It's bad. And I think that was a key to success is that providing an alternative vision to what the future should be is really important. Um, and we tend not to do that. I, I think back about the, um, this isn't a great story, but I, I think that we don't have enough positive things that we fight for. So we end up just fighting everything and being like not clear and unified. We're oftentimes unified about the problem and then not unified about the solution at all. I like that. Yeah, I think, again, there's just, we're, there's so many people in the world now, it's almost unfathomable. Like, I can't, I, I what was it, 7 billion now? Yeah, I Seven, think so, yeah. Like, I can't, that number is so big, I can't put that many people in my mind. But I can put 60,000 in Santa Cruz, you know, we got something here, what's the issue? Like, rally around with your 12 buddies. I just think it's, it makes it so much more manageable. Um, and also is a really good antidote to um, to people getting burnt out mm-hmm. trying to take on you know take on too much bite off too much that they can more than they can chew and then just like receding out of it it seems like that's a, a big issue that that the environmental movement faces is burnout yeah I think it's um, about prioritizing uh, what you think is important <clears throat> based on your values and and what you hold dear and knowing what that is, I think is an important lesson, you know, and I think about it in terms of save the waves, right. And focusing like, yep, we're just focused on, on surf ecosystems is our thing. We're place-based conservation. That's what we're doing. It keeps us out of 
I mean, we'll do, um, kind of beach cleanups and, and those types of things with plastic if we see it sort of threatening the larger thing, but we're not really part of the plastic movement, you know, like we believe in it. It's great, but we're not like, we haven't constructed a big plastic strategy. You know, we, we tackle it in the context of place. Um, and I think same thing with sustainability. It's important, but we're not going out there trying to have like everybody, um, you know, start surfing on wooden Elias or whatever it is that's, you know, has to do with sustainability. I think that's, that's sort of important, um, is focusing. And then I, and I think that's the same for my own, um, beliefs a little bit. I, I think more, if I think about our general problems in, in the world, I think the ones that concern me most are ones that have to do with the economy and fairness, ones that have to do with education, I guess, you know, and, effectiveness and then ones have to do with the environment. And, and so I think not getting too distracted from the things you think are important because literally, especially right now, there's something every day that you could take offense to and be completely just sideswiped and, and like people get emotionally fatigued if you're every single issue you're really bummed about. And so I think it's being able to prioritize and, uh, you know, almost say like, you know, it's like an emergency. You, you go into a first responder and you have to do triage. Who's the most injured person and what's the injury that's most important? Start there, you know, and we don't triage. And what injuries can I handle? Yeah. And what, and right. what's my capacity? Yeah. Right. And so, and we don't tend to triage. We just go in there, <laughs> you know, a lot of times it's like, oh God, there's this giant emergency car crash everywhere. There's bodies everywhere. This is terrible. We're so pissed. We can't do anything. <laughs> I'm gonna write that a- guy's dead and this guy's dying and this guy's hurt and this guy's walking over here. Uh, we can't do anything about, you know. I'm going to make a clever sign about it. <laughs> yeah. Fuck the emergency. <laughs> you know, so I think we have to be a little bit, mm, we have to be a little bit resident. Let's focus yeah. on what's important. Not to say that protests aren't sometimes the, the tool. They're effective. They're yeah. the tool. Sometimes they're just not always the tool. Right. I mean, I, I think back to, I think back to, uh, the, you know, when the second Gulf war was starting in 2003 and there's people walking out about it. it was a bad idea. And we all know that in retrospect at the time, people weren't sure if it was a bad idea. It seemed like a bad idea to me. So we walked out and I went to this big protest and there was, like, you know, and they're like, yeah, we got to stop this injustice and stop the war. And we're not going to bomb the Iraqis. And legalize weed. And I was like, <laughs> what the, d- 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 what, did, how did it, oh, so I feel like that's the guy that shows up to the emergency and is like, you know, there's a bunch of things and we can't sort out what's important. Yeah. Was legalizing weed the most important thing yeah. right then? Let's tie a tourniquet around this guy's leg and legalize weed. Yeah, <laughs> legalize weed. And you know what? I guess, uh. Maybe I'm wrong because on the whole of it, we didn't stop the war, but then they legalized me. So maybe that guy was right. You know, I don't know. The old switcheroo. Yeah. I, I just think it's just like, let's just focus on what's important. Yeah. And what's important is usually what are the things that impact the most people, you know? Uh, and what can I do? And, and what can you do? Yeah. And I tend to think that the environment is important because it generally affects everyone. Most people drink water. Yeah. Most people go outside and breathe air most people who live on the coast like don't want to get flooded you know most people that go surfing don't want to end up with a head cold you know like with like an infection so there's i think there's ways of uh of just prioritizing yeah so excellent well you have the app uh people can, can get in touch with you save the ways.com dot org dot org yeah we're we're, we're a non-profit you're an org <laughs> um and anything else no, I think it's it's cool to catch up with you and uh, and hang out. I always enjoy our chats. I feel like this is just the internet version of what we've been doing for years. So yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's pretty fun. Minus but. the skateboard session. Yeah, have, have you been skating? You know, I have actually. Really? I um, well, I'll, I'll do a quick detour. But you know, we, we I did get the the pleasure of going to Indonesia and in northern Indonesia and getting a surf, and it was warm. And I was surfing like by myself and I just realized like, oh, I, this is so fun. I really like surfing by myself and just like contemplating and not taking that wave or going on that wave or, or like, know that I'm probably not going to make it, but I'll just go for it. And then coming back to Santa Cruz and being like, wow, it's really crowded here. I only got to 
get three waves in the last <laughs> session. And, uh, and then, so the, but then the skateboard session, I'd been taking my son to school. He goes, you know, down to Cabrillo. So I drive past the skate park every day. So I took him yesterday and he loved it. We went skateboarding together, which is really fun. You go to a new park with a five foot ramp, mm-hmm. the, or five or six foot ramp, yeah. big long cement yeah. one. Yeah. And, and it's, it's like, and I go there and I've been going, well, I shouldn't tell people I'm being, when I've been going, but I've been going in the it's morning. It's been great. I've been the only one there. Yeah, I have been. I have been the only one there, and I, it's uh, the Mike Fox Park. No, I'm kidding. Um, well, but it's it's just nice. I'll just say I really like skateboarding because it's different, and I feel like you know I I always grew up skateboarding and I love it, and um, and it just gets you back to just like having fun and spending your free time just having fun and not worrying and dinking around. And it's cool to see it through my son's eyes. So I do love skateboarding and I'm, I'm now like committed. I'm like, I'm going to just skate a lot. That's great. So and not get, get hurt. As soon as I get my arm back, I'm, uh, I'm yeah. ready to go mess around on get the your, ramp. Get your arm back. Nick Strong's fetish. Thank you so much, sir. Thanks buddy. I appreciate it. That's our show. One more time. We got the box of goodies at Kyle.surf. Just scroll down a little bit and you will see it. Um, there's only a few left, so snag yours before they're all gone. Once again, thank you so much to Mudwater. Thank you to Santa Cruz Medicinals. Uh, they do. So I don't think I mentioned this at the beginning because I'm an idiot and just trying to start this whole ad thing. But Santa Cruz Medicinals, you can type in Kyle10 and you can get 10% off any product you want. Um, or at a huge discount, you can go to kyle.surf and get your mud, CBD, and zip book, the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. I'm thinking about doing like a subscription thing. Let me know if you guys would be interested in that. Like if you get a new book every month and a can of, of CBD and um, CBD coconut oil and, and mud water. Seems like it would be kind of cool, but let me know your interest on that. Let me know your interest on who else I should get on this podcast. Um, thank you to everyone also who donates on Patreon. I'm, I'm really trying to make this podcast a bigger part of my life and uh, one day not need to sell my body on the side of Greyhound Station bus stops and supplement this podcast with um, with sex work. But um, until that day comes, um, I, you know, I appreciate all of you who, who donate on Patreon and who get these boxes of goodies because... Um, it's getting me down to like two days a week of sex work, which is which is a win. It's a win. By 2020, I'll be full podcast. Maybe just like one day of sex work. But that's all for now. Uh, don't forget the voice memos, too. I love getting them from you. You can email them to info at kyle.surf. Just let me know who you are, where you're listening from, something cool that's going on, um, you know, that's either good for the world or whatever just describe your situation where are you right now if you're still listening are you still out there (laughs) it's fun like a lot of people listen to this podcast but whenever i'm i'm recording this i'm in my house alone and i'm like jesus christ kyle you're you're a crazy person talking to yourself but i know you're out there so send me voice memos and uh let me know you're real much love i'm gonna play out with a song called Three Foot Tires and Rising by Oppo. I will link to their band page in the show notes on my website, kyle.surf. Much love. I'll see you soon. Maybe drive on looking at the sun. It's a new day rousing. Had a lot of fun saving. The burning right stack stepping in time. Saw the vibe Skating 
on the ice with a new check fix on the ocean in the pines. We own street near Hollywood and Vine, riding three feet high, traveling time to more. Ghost town vibe with my three foot ties. Oh yeah, most times, most of my rides call me three foot signs. Oh yeah, mini mini. Most times, most of my rides call me three foot signs. Mini mini. Most times, most of my Most of my ride. 